So, so yesterday, um, if you guys didn't know this, there's a tattoo convention uh, down at the at the fairgrounds. Uh, today's the last day. If you guys wanted to go check it out, but I'm driving down there, and I realized my dog has like three gears. My dog has asleep, groggy, and full on. So I'm going down there, and there's like people walking their dogs. You know where the fair park is? Okay, good. Okay, down behind Santa Maria High School. Okay, so I'm going to, and people walk their dogs. My dog's like, you know, she's sleeping and she's groggy, and she sees the dog. She's like, ah! I'm like, they can't hear you. You're inside the car. I'm the only one that gets all the volume and stuff. Having said that, go check out the tattoo show. Yeah. All right. Uh, I got one one thing to tell you before I, I got one one announcement, and then this. Uh, kids are starting to graduate right now, and uh, this is Tyler Bray. Okay, this is uh, actually, th- this is his, commi- he's, his commencement ceremony. He's going, he's going into the Army, and uh, he's actually going as a second lieutenant since he just graduated college. Now, what's really interesting is he's the fourth generation, okay? which, is, which is really kind of neat, right? And uh, on, on his shoulders right there, that's, that's his uh, grandfather's, or his dad's and his grandfather's, uh, uh, what are they called? Right, on, on his shoulders right there. So that's, that's kind of neat, right? Awesome. I think he's going to be your third service. You see him, say, way to go. Awesome. Plus, all of his buddies, they don't uh, graduate for a little bit farther, so their commissioning ceremony isn't until later, so they all have to salute him. <laughs> Great picture, Jim. <laughs> That's his dad right there in the hallway. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> all right. Uh, if you have kids that are in E-Kids in the back and you want to send them to uh, E-Kids summer camp, uh, what they're going to do is on May 26th, they're going to have a short meeting, 1245, uh, after the third service, uh, and it's going to be short, okay, short, but they're going to let you meet the counselors, show you a video, and then because it is expensive, they have a whole lot of fundraisers coming up for you, so you can find out about those, how to get involved, maybe how to lead one yourself, and then so you can help get your kids to go to camp without breaking the bank. How's that? May 26th, May 26th. It's like, I'll go to third service that day. Nice. All right. Hope you find a seat. All right. Why don't you stay on there? You're reading God's word. We'll get started. This is John chapter 8, verse 7. And it says, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people will be those who understand your grace and your goodness and your call in our lives. That we would be those who drop our rocks and live a life that honors and reflects who you are in it. Amen. Have a seat. So this is uh, week 65 of the book of Genesis. Uh, today, as week 65, we're actually in Genesis 45. If you want to open your Bible there, you can stick your finger in it. But then I want you to flip over to John chapter 8, because that's where we're going to spend our first bit of time. Uh, I feel like I kind of live in a bizarre world when I give you guys messages. Because uh, usually when things are, are really heavy, I, we make fun of it, and we laugh a lot about things, and that's great. And when things are supposed to be really fun, like Joseph today revealing himself to his family, then coming back together, I make it very heavy and very serious. I don't know why I do that. It just kind of works out that way. Uh, Joseph's story is a story of betrayal and redemption. And John chapter 8 is kind of that same type of story. I'm going to jump in and be quick. I actually do listen every once in a while to the messages I give you. And I think, number one, slow down. And I never do. But I do think in my head, oh, I'm talking really slow now. <laughs> and the second thing is, uh, I've been kind of long-winded the last few weeks. Like I've been over 40 minutes less, so I'm going to try and keep it 30. 
or under. Which totally freaked out the man in first service. Like, is he done? So I'm trying to, so you guys will love me because I'll try and be shorter today. Uh, John chapter 8 is a story of the woman caught in adultery. Some of your Bibles, if you look at John 8, they have this note and it says this isn't in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, that means there is some doubt that this story is part of John's original gospel. Now, there's nothing unworthy in it of sound doctrine. Uh, it's, it's something that probably happened during Jesus' ministry. It may not have been in this section. It may have been somewhere else and got placed here. And so when John, when John puts the gospel together, some scribes may have put it back in. But the reason that note is there is so you know that you can trust what's in your Bible. Okay, you know, when we're unsure about something, the note goes in there so you know. No one's trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. The Bible has not been translated and translated and translated, so you don't know what was there. The Bible always goes back to the earliest manuscripts that we have, so the ones that we use, the ESV, word-for-word translation, trying to go back to the earliest manuscripts we have, always trying to remain uh, the, the best to what we've got there. So when you look at something like this and we have some doubts about it, it shouldn't be considered part of scripture and should not be used as a basis to build any point of doctrine but i do think it's very useful for what we study because it really shows you the character of who jesus is and it's true to his character john chapter 8 is a story about a group of men who are supposed to look out for the welfare of other people around them i believe men have a biblical calling to give hope to the hopeless to protect those who need it the men in john chapter 8 they forgot that calling like many men today forget that calling john chapter 8 is also the story of an encounter with jesus who resets everybody in it everybody understands who they are and who he is in light of the words that he gives and we bow ourselves to him that same thing happens to us john chapter 8 again is a story of a woman caught in adultery it is about pain and sorrow and betrayal and hope and ultimately redemption and it sounds again a lot like joseph's story in john chapter 8 there's a woman who maybe at one point in her life could have been an excited bride Maybe she had a husband who loved her deeply. She probably dreams of raising a family with him. But things don't turn out the way that she planned. It could be her fault, her husband's fault, it could be both of them. But she met another man, and he notices her, and they knew what to say to each other, and all of a sudden the unthinkable then happens. Now, adultery is a horrible, horrible thing. It's why we are to guard our marriages and our lives well. It's why we're to be servants of our spouses to, so they feel loved and honored at home. If you are passive-aggressive and you think that being irritable to your spouse all the time is going to make them love you more, you are a fool. You are a fool and you've got to grow up. There is no excuse for adultery, but you also have to be careful because kind words go a long way to a hurt and a saddened heart. Uh, Deborah Tannen, in her book, you, don't, you Just Don't Understand, she writes this story about her great aunt. She says this, My great aunt, for many years a widow, fell in love when she was in her 70s. Obese, balding, her hands and legs misshapen by arthritis, she did not fit the stereotype of a woman romantically loved, but she was, by a man also in his 70s who lived in a nursing home. And trying to tell me what this relationship meant to her, my great aunt told of a conversation. One evening, she had dinner out with friends. When she returned home, her male friend called and she told him about the dinner. He listened with interest and asked her, what did you wear? Now, when she told me this, she began to cry. Do you know how many years it's been since anyone asked me what I wore? You know, maybe the man in John 8 just asked the woman what she wore. I mean, she found a man that seemed to care. Could have started innocent until they started crossing lines. It could have been a touch that maybe lingered too long. Could have been the sharing of a secret. Uh, could be she's angry at her husband and she betrays his confidence to this other guy. Maybe she didn't notice, but she kept choosing. She started to cross other lines, tell this is a full-blown affair. And as long as it's secret, it can be two different lives and two different worlds. 
And so she, when she's in one world, she can pretend the other doesn't really exist. She doesn't have to think about what's happening to herself. She doesn't have to think about how this is really damaging her own soul. And this is the truth about sin. Sin unchecked in our lives always leads to more sin, never to less. Now, she probably used to be a truthful person. So she starts lying then to her husband about where she's going, what she's doing. Eventually, she doesn't even notice that she's lying anymore because everything becomes a lie. She becomes hard. She has become a liar. You know, the first time she probably went to temple, to church, after she committed adultery, she probably thought, oh, everybody can see that it's got to be written all over me. But no one said anything. She probably expects lightning to come out of the sky and just zap her right there. But it doesn't. So she starts to think about God differently. She's become a hypocrite. She doesn't notice what's really happening to herself. And then this night, this morning, this day, whenever it is, happens in John chapter 8. We don't know how many times her and this guy have been together, but she's with them again. The door swings open. There's men outside. There's waiting. They're waiting. They're, they're watching. She screams. She cries. She begs for mercy. They bundle her up. She probably wishes she'd go back to the very first time. She crossed the line the first time and just take that back and never go farther than that. Just stop there. See, it's like the fall. Her eyes are open. She sees what's happening. She's naked. She's ashamed. She wants to hide. But you got to understand, she's not a victim. She, led, she had choices that led to this. She's taken by a group of men to Jesus while he's teaching. And the author wants you to see that this is not some private conversation between a couple individuals, you know, for constructive criticism. Hey, let's help you get better. This is public humiliation. It's the woman they're after, and they're mostly after Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 2. Early in the morning, he, that's Jesus, came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? Now, this is an awkward thing. Imagine I'm up here and we're talking through this story and someone comes running up to the front and throws someone down. Boom! Hey, Aaron, this person's been caught in adultery. What do you say that we do? You'd all be like, this is awkward. Right? You're like, I'm never going back there because stupid, crazy things happen there. The, the, the law is clear what caught in the act means. One witness is not enough, according to the Mosaic law, to, to convict somebody. So you have to have two or three. This means there's two or three or four or more guys standing outside the store waiting for the act to happen. They're watching. And then they go in, and they, this is cold-blooded premeditation. It tells you their contempt for the woman, but also their contempt for Jesus. The other man, he's not seen in this account, which leads many to believe that this becomes a setup. They find out it's going on. They go to him and say, hey, we'll let you go, but you give us her. You let us know the next time it's happening, and you give us her, and you can get away. Because, you know, women are just worthless. So she's caught red-handed. The law is clear. Jesus, what do you say? They think they have him now. They have stones in their hands ready to throw, waiting for the word to come down. Now, here's my question for you. Have you ever held a stone? Have you ever had a stone in your hand? Theologians, they divide sin into two essential categories. One's called sins of the flesh. These are appetites out of control. This is lust and greed and gluttony and drunkenness and laziness. Our flesh, given enough time, makes an idol out of anything, from cars to donuts to pornography to TV. You know, the, the idols will lead to other sins like deceit and betrayal and despair. But they also talk about sins of the spirit. That's less to do with biology and more to do with your soul. This is pride. This is arrogance. This is self-righteousness. It's judgmentalism. Now, they provoke sometimes gossip like the sins of the flesh do, but they're deadlier because they make us pick up rocks. If a pastor leaves a church for moral reasons, it's usually not arrogance. All right? It's usually something else. Churches today are not scandalized by arrogance, though I think a lot of them are known by it. 
You have to understand, sins of the Spirit are things that Jesus hated. And this is why he's always telling stories about it. You know, the story of the prodigal son, this kid that runs off, just rejects his family and his father and runs off, and then he goes through all this wild living, comes back, and his father loves him and takes him home, and the older brother's out in the field just bitter and angry, ready to throw stones at his younger brother. You have the story of a woman who comes to Jesus and she anoints his feet and wipes it with her hair. And people look at Jesus and they say, man, if he only knew the type of woman that was that was washing his feet, he would get away from her. And then stories like John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, you see both types of sins. You have people with sins of the flesh. The woman, she knows she's in big trouble. She's caught red-handed. But you also have sins of the spirit, the teachers of the law, who thought it was possible to love God and despise people and carry around their rocks. The teachers of the law, they thought they were holy, they thought they were righteous, but sin had crippled their ability to love others, which makes sins of the spirit the most destructive of it all. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing. The pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They're the animal self, which is the flesh, and the diabolical self, the spirit. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. Today, we are scandalized by sins of the flesh. But Jesus seems to be scandalized by sins of the spirit. And these are teachers of the law, and they're questioning Jesus. How about this? Because we look at teachers of the law, and we think, oh, those are terrible people, those teachers of the law. Do you think any of these guys, when they started off really young to be teachers of the law, thought that they wanted to be filled with hatred and malice? No. They probably thought, man, I want to love God. I want to know him better. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to get so close to him. They probably were motivated by love. But eventually... This learning fills them with pride because they start to live their lives differently than everybody else, and they start to judge everybody else around them. I mean, have you ever had judgmental thoughts, superior attitudes, impatient words, bitter resentment? Do you ever see anybody as weaker than you? You ever drive down the road and maybe see the crack hoe on the side of the road and be like, oh, she got five kids living off the government. Oh, that's so terrible. And you're pointing fingers at her, oh, and you're just throwing judgment rather than help. Do you ever wonder why churches produce so many people who are so ready to throw stones? A lot of churches don't laugh unless it's at other people. A lot of people don't have a church don't have a joy unless it's in passing judgment against other people. I could I could tell you a few stories about people who have actually left element because you guys and me are so jacked up. Seriously. I've had people who have left because you guys don't parent your kids correctly. And you know, some of you don't. And you need to get better. Your, your kids are not God in your home. You are their parent. You're not their buddy. All right? And, and we gotta get that. But because you guys are real, like, oh, I wanna be around people who parent their kids better, so you know, like, and, and I've, I've had people leave because your marriages are jacked up. Right? And, and you, you know, if you're like, yeah, that's me. Okay, that, that could be you, right? And you're thinking, about, oh, that, that's me. And people would be, oh, I remember people who have really healthy and good, and good marriages. And you probably should have those people in your life. And there's a whole lot of other issues I won't even throw out there that you all know that you got. And, and people leave. And then all I think about when these people leave to go someplace else where people have it all together, as soon as they actually have some issues, they're not going to be able to talk to anybody about it. They're not going to be able to be real about it because they've got to have it all together like everybody else has it all together. I will take you crazy people any day, okay? I really will. I really will. But you have to understand, e- even in that, we're like, oh, yeah, I'm a terrible parent. Oh, I'm, I'm a horrible husband. And we wear that as a badge of honor. It's not a badge of honor. Be a better parent. Be a better husband. But we wear it. Yeah, we wear a craziness on the outside. Yeah, I messed up, and, and, I just, and I just throw it out there. But then we still have lines that we hate when people cross, I mean, I mean, think about this. We pick up our stones. Oh, gee, you're so-and-so? Oh, they committed adultery. 
Oh, it's so sad. Oh, I can't believe it. What about their poor kids? Oh, and you just start talking and gossiping and trying to, you know, mess them over. We act so concerned on the inside we're still seething because we still have lines that people can cross and we pick up stones. Philip Yancey, you probably heard this story. He writes a book called What's So Amazing About Grace. And he tells a story in the book. He says, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do what she said to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive, shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why do I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Now, you have to understand, you, you, don't, you wouldn't be someone like this, oh, great, just keep doing what you're doing. You need to get a child in a place of safety so a child is not hurt. But in the midst of helping, you don't throw judgment. Ancient times, women like this ran to Jesus. Today, they run away from his followers. What would it be like if we didn't pick up stones? They go to Jesus, throw the woman in front of him and say, what do you say that we do? We're supposed to stone her. Verse 6, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus went down and rode with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. He says, go ahead, one rule, let him without sin go first. Now this is kind of scary in a crowd of self-righteous people. Because some self-righteous people are like, yeah, that's me, I don't have sin. Bink! I mean, I can see somebody doing it. This is why I believe the Holy Spirit is moving at this time, so everybody's convicted of their sin and they don't throw stones. And we don't know what Jesus wrote on the ground. Whatever it is, it's confronting these guys with a decision. You know, to pass judgment, you have to be sinless. And it tells us that fallen people are in no position to throw stones. Verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, from now, go and from now on, sin no more. So somebody drops their stone, and somebody else drops their stone. I don't, maybe they remember what it's like to actually need forgiveness. Philip Yancey, in writing about this, says in the group there were two categories, sinners the woman and the righteous the men. Yet Jesus, in one set of words, replaces the two categories with two of his own, sinners who admit and sinners who deny. Now, flip over to Genesis 45. With that in mind, Genesis 45, different story, but this kind of fits. All right? You have Joseph. God gives him dreams. He's a tattletale. His brothers get angry at him, sell him into slavery. In slavery, he is wrongly accused of a crime he does not commit. He spends... 13 plus years in jail. Eventually, the guy in charge of the entire country has a dream. And it's going to be about a famine that's coming. Joseph interprets the dream and says, this is what you got to do to save your entire country. Pharaoh says, great, you do it. Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the world at that time. Eventually, his family is starving. They come down to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph recognizes them. He, they don't recognize him. And so he puts them through two years of tests before he trusts them. Genesis 45, verse 1, this is his reveal. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Now that's a guy who can cry, all right? We've seen he's a crier. If you're down the street and you're in Pharaoh's house, you still hear him crying, that's a dude who can cry really loud. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And that has to be true because he would have said this in Hebrew. His brothers know that Egyptians don't know Hebrew. They don't speak Hebrew. It's beneath them. 
Oh my, and so they're freaking out. What's his first question? I am Joseph. His first question is, is my father still alive? Have you been lying to me? Is dad still there? This kind of shows he's not bitter or angry, but he's got his family on his heart. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. This word means terrified. Okay, They were terrified at his presence. And I'm thinking, good. He hasn't said, I forgive you yet. They should be freaking out. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And that's scary, too. I'm Joseph. Come here. Okay. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, what you have to see and understand that the brothers freak out because, oh my goodness, that's Joseph. We have sinned against them. Their sin destroyed their family dynamic. This woman in John chapter 8, her sin destroys her family dynamic. And I am sure much of the pain in both their lives all came about the moments of her adultery and them selling Joseph into slavery. And now they're found out. Now it's laid bare. Now, if we're Joseph, most of us would be rightly angry. Right? We would be like the men in John 8, holding our pile of stones, waiting for the moment that's most opportune to throw them back at them and just hurt them worse and worse. How do I know this? Because we all keep a pile of rocks. All of us do to throw up people who have hurt us. And if someone does apologize, we throw them anyway. We don't understand how bad I hurt. You don't understand this. And we just start throwing them at people. Joseph, he's got a huge pile of rocks. He's got prison and slavery and false rape charges. The only Christian in his entire country. He probably works 100 hours a week and doesn't even get paid. But what does Joseph do? He puts down his rocks. And so should we. I mean, do you know married couples are great at throwing rocks? Remember five years ago, you squeezed a toothpaste from the wrong end? Oh, yeah. Remember that one year you forgot our anniversary? How could I forget? You remind me every year. You know, I mean, <laughs> it is hard to be around bitter and angry people who can't forgive and just always complain. But many times that becomes us, and we don't even realize it. This is one of the reasons that we're always trying to get you involved in communities that are centered around the gospel, because you have to get people around you the, the, the grace to be able to step into your life and say, you are acting like this. You have rocks in your hands. You've got to put those things down. We need to be able to listen to these people. You've got to understand, we, we can be like Jesus in almost every way except for one. Jesus never sinned, and so he never had to repent. We have sinned. We repent. In 1 John, it says those who say they haven't sinned are not even believers. We own up to what we have done. We drop our rocks, and we move on to real and true life. This is what Joseph does with his brothers. He goes on, verse 6, and says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but who? God. God sent me here. Joseph doesn't shy away from the fact that God allowed horrible things in his life for God's own greater glory and to bring about the better purposes for his people. But here's my question. The brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Who's responsible for that? The brothers. The brothers, completely. God gives Joseph a dream. Joseph goes and he tells this dream to his brothers. God knows exactly what the brothers are going to do when Joseph tells him this dream. They sell him into slavery. The brothers are responsible for that. The woman who's caught in adultery, who's responsible for that? She is. Her sin, assuredly. But you've got to understand that God, in the midst of this, comes in and uses this to change her life and Joseph's life and the brothers' lives for good. Joseph knows that God has a plan in all things. What Joseph says is that the people who were supposed to care for me didn't, but God did. And it wasn't always pleasant, but I trust him and what he's doing. And because Joseph was willing, willing to trust God and love God, it all begins to work out. 
You've got to hear me in this. It isn't that people's actions are acceptable, but God uses all things. God, by loving people, does not condone their action. He redeems them. Dropping rocks against people is not the same thing as approving of their actions and what they're doing. Dropping rocks against people is not toleration of their actions. In Genesis 45 and John 8, you see why hurting people were drawn to the person of who God actually was and is. People ran to Jesus. Jesus was a people magnet because he actually loved and redeemed and restored people. He wasn't a guy who was just standing around knowing he's going to get betrayed and hurt. He knew people were terrible. And yet he sought them out and loved them and redeemed them anyway. If you ever watch sports, sometimes you'll see all the players when they're on the bus going to another game or something. And what you'll see is that like the first stringers, they don't ride on the bus with the third stringers. If you ever see like a red carpet event and you have like A-list movie stars, they're not eating at tables with B-list movie actors. But Jesus is the exact opposite because when messed up people come to the only sinless person ever, he loves them, he welcomes them, he redeems them. Dropping rocks is an act of the heart. It says it's a good thing that other people are alive and you want them to love Jesus too. What if today someone revealed to you their deepest, darkest secret? How would you respond? Really? I have a friend who's been married three times. He didn't even follow Jesus. Till, it says he did, but he didn't really follow Jesus until the third time. And after the third one, he looks at his life and the mess that he's made and the people that he's hurt. And he said, you know what? I want to help people change. I need to do something to make this not happen to somebody else. And so he's now in ministry, wanting to help people where he was before. And you might think, wow, that's great. Look how God redeemed that. He's helping other people. But what if it's your daughter that he divorced? What if you are the person he divorced? Could you drop the stone and help hope his ministry actually succeeds? See, it's the personal that is so hard to drop rocks from. Some of you probably have ex-spouses. Can you drop the rocks and actually pray that they start to follow Jesus, that they wouldn't spend eternity in a fiery torment of an afterlife, you know, and actually live and love God? How about a boss or coworker that has screwed you over? Can you drop rocks and begin to pray for them as someone Jesus loves? I mean, look at Joseph. You know, how about someone wrongly accuses you of rape and you spend the better part of your life in jail? How about, like Joseph again, you get sold into slavery by the people who are supposed to love you and look out for you. You know, what, what if you have a spouse who has hurt you or maybe parents who have betrayed you? See, I think Joseph comes to understand something we all must understand, that in all the world, only Jesus could have a pile of rocks because only Jesus was, was without sin. But he doesn't. He redeems and he restores See, Jesus tells this woman that there's not really any difference between her sin and the heart of the men who want her dead. But he tells her one thing, I think, that cuts her to the heart. And it allows her to know that he knows all about her past, but he still believes in her. I think this thing will remain with her until she is old and gray and hopefully has some grandchildren around her feet. John 8, 11, he says, go now and leave your life of sin or go and sin no more. See, again, dropping your rocks is not tolerating or condoning bad behavior. It doesn't mean you watch a friend make bad choices that are going to destroy their lives. Dropping your rocks against people doesn't mean you refuse to confront and challenge what could damage their soul. Failure to confront is as bad as being judgmental, I think, at times. But what Jesus does is he accepts the woman. He forgives the woman. He called her and drew her to something infinitely greater, and it cost him dearly. Because those same men that were after her and after him are going to come back after Jesus with even a bigger and greater vengeance. Kenneth Bailey writes this, They'll be back with a bigger stick. Jesus is in the process of getting hurt because of what he is doing for her, because he's protecting her. 
And he looks at her after he runs everybody off and he says, go and sin no more. You see, God's love and grace, is, it's, it, his acceptance is free. It is undeserved. But it also becomes demanding on the backside. Because for her to examine and understand this acceptance, it meant entering a new way of life. That's away from her sin, away from the things that she was doing to destroy everybody around her. You see, dropping rocks did what condemnation couldn't. It made her change her life and adopt the way of Jesus. And this is the same thing that is true for the life of Joseph. Joseph drops the rocks that he could have held against his family. And by dropping those rocks, it did what throwing rocks could never do. It restores his entire family relationship. And you would be surprised what dropping your rights to punitive vengeance can do, not only in your own heart, but also in the hearts of others around you. Because in the end, we must be a people who understand that our God, who could have had just stacks and stacks and stacks of rocks against us, has dropped them. They don't even exist for him anymore. And he has sought us and forgiven us and restored relationship with us. And the question becomes, if we call ourselves his people, how can we do any less? How can we do any less? You see, this, this is the idea of the gospel, that God has wiped away everything that has stood between us and him. As a matter of fact, Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are no rocks. They're not even there. They're gone. And you have to understand that this is why every week we make it a point to talk about communion. We come to this place where, where we break the cracker, which is like Christ's body. It was broken for us. We dip it in the wine and the grape juice, reminding us of his blood that was shed for you and I. Because this is what happened because he stood up and protected this woman. They came back and he died, not only to save her, but to save us. And that's what we remember at communion. Communion, a place of repentance. We drop our rocks. We humble ourselves before him because we see ourselves for what we are and him for what he is. And we become his children and walk in lives of grace and truth and hope. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you again to take communion, to drop your rocks and step away from them. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And maybe if you are somebody who is holding on to a whole lot of rocks, this morning we invite you to maybe pray with them and to begin to drop those. If you are someone who feels like you always had rocks thrown against you, we invite you to go and pray with them as well. Maybe find a place because when you get rocks thrown at you long enough, you start to pick up your own. And you start to get very angry because people won't stop throwing rocks at you. And you begin you know, to take all the stuff that's going on and wear it as your badge of, of right to hold your own rocks as well. We must all drop our rocks and stop throwing them at other people and even if we don't throw them we can't carry them around in our backpack or a bag with us so we can pull them out when we really want them there's offering boxes and side on the back we give because god gave so much to us giving is simply part of our worship and there's some food and stuff in the back and i guarantee you that if you grab some food you get to know some other people and you actually begin to develop some relationships eventually someone's going to hurt you and you'll feel like you have a right and a reason to pick up a rock to hold and want to throw at somebody else but you don't you don't have a right. Again, there's, there's nothing wrong with stepping in and trying to make things better, but in the midst of that, we're not throwing judgment. We're giving hope. Like Jesus draws people, says, says things exactly as they are, and yet draws people to a place where people want to follow and want to love him because of what he has done. Dropping rocks and love and grace is a much greater motivation than someone's finger in the middle of your face. And we all know that. So why don't we live like Jesus calls us to? Probably make a big difference in those around us, right? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and you would help us to understand the great grace that you have offered to us. That if anybody 
in all the world could have a pile of rocks at you because we are a people who have sinned against you. And yet in Christ, you have wiped away that debt. You have wiped away the condemnation. You have wiped away the rocks that have stood against us. And I ask that we as a people would begin to take your calling seriously in our lives, that we would begin to change so that we as well drop our rocks and begin to follow you as you call us to with our eyes not upon everybody else around us and all their issues, but our eyes upon you and allowing you to direct our gaze where it needs to be so we see things as you see things. So there is hope where it seems like it's hopeless because you are there. And that means there always is hope. And we'd understand the peace that you have given to us is meant to flow like a river. We're not a dam where the peace stops. We are conduits where that peace flows through us out to other people. And because you have made things right with us and you again, we would live lives that seek to make things right between us and other people again. Thank you for loving, restoring, and redeeming us when we have nothing to give. Thank you for when you look at us, you see your son and his goodness. And help us be a people to walk in the humbleness of knowing that so that you are lifted up and you are honored and you are glorified. And we ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.